prison. The very word feels like a bucket of ice dumped down your back. But believers throughout the ages have known what it means to spend time in prison. Just ask the Apostle Paul. Actually, we're about to do better than that. Just ahead, we'll be leaving our studios and we'll bring you the sights and sounds of Caesarea Maritima, a prison excavation. Welcome to The Land and the Book with noted Israel expert, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. You know, Charlie, a lot of people ask, how do I share the gospel with my Jewish friend? And that's a good question. And that question recognizes the need, I think, for a sensitive approach to sharing with our Jewish friends. You know, it does, John. That's why our friends at Life and Messiah want to help answer that question. They put together a series of helpful articles on how you can share the good news with Jewish people around you. You'll learn about Jewish cultural sensitivities, how anti-Semitism affects Jewish evangelism, uh, the importance of Messianic prophecy, and more. To access the articles, visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. You'll receive the articles to equip you with a practical way to share the good news with Jewish people around you or online. Again, click on the Moody Radio icon at lifeinmessiah.org. Well, let's swing our focus toward current events throughout the Middle East region. Serious disagreements between the U.S. and Israel are now surfacing over Israel's continuing conflict with Hamas. What's causing these fissures and what impact might they have on the course of the war? Unfortunately, the fissures are being caused by fundamental disagreements between the White House and Israel. President Biden called Israel's military campaign against Hamas over the top. When asked for clarification, the White House said the president wants Hamas defeated, but that Israel must do so while protecting civilians. There's also a clear interpersonal tension going on between the president and the prime minister. One reason the tension has escalated is Israel's impending attack against Hamas's last remaining stronghold of Rafah. Because of the previous fighting, about 1.4 million of Gaza's 2.3 million people are now packed into this relatively small area. And the U.S. and other Western leaders are concerned about the impact of fighting on those civilians. In a 45-minute call last Sunday, President Biden bluntly told Netanyahu not to press into Rafah without a credible plan for civilians. Prime Minister Netanyahu countered that to defeat Hamas, Israel must operate in Rafah. Four battalions of Hamas fighters remain in Rafah in addition to Hamas's leadership and the hostages. Netanyahu has ordered a plan to be developed that allows for the evacuation of civilians while still pushing forward with the war against Hamas. Uh, One option being explored is to set up 15 tent cities along the coast of Gaza, each with 25,000 tents. Uh, But let me go back to the reason for these fissures widening. Two other factors appear to be in play. The first is the way both countries view the war. As one Israeli pundit put it, the U.S. is still stuck in October 6th. It assumes the solution to all the problems in the Middle East is the establishment of a Palestinian state, forgetting that Hamas's attack was unprovoked and that Hamas has said it will never accept the existence of a Jewish state of Israel. Israel sees Hamas and its ideology as a deadly cancer threatening their very lives, and they won't stop until the cancer is removed. The U.S. is more willing to let a weakened Hamas remain. The other factor at play is our upcoming presidential election, Progressives and Muslims are sharply critical of President Biden's support for Israel in the war against Hamas, and he appears to be pushing Israel to wind down the war to satisfy those voters. A memorandum issued by the White House last week requires countries receiving U.S. military funding to prove they're following international humanitarian and human rights laws, 
Most countries have 180 days to comply, but Israel was only given 45 days. This is the kind of pressure the U.S. is placing on Israel to try to force them to pull back and stop short of total victory or risk losing U.S. support and future military aid. But why is so much pressure being placed on Israel from the U.S., the U.N., and Europe to reach a ceasefire and end the conflict? Is the concern for both the hostages and the civilians in Gaza truly legitimate? The concern for the hostages and the civilians in Gaza is indeed legitimate. The problem is that those saying this most loudly also seem to be implying that Israel isn't concerned about them. And that's just not the case. The chair of the Urban Warfare Studies at West Point posted a a week ago and said Israel has done more to minimize civilian casualties than any other military in the history of war. He gave examples such as calling or texting ahead of a strike to warn civilians, uh, the so-called roof knocking to let residents know the building's about to be bombed, evacuating urban areas before the full air and ground attack begin. On the other side of the equation, it's Hamas that deliberately embedded themselves within civilian population centers, used hospitals, mosques, schools, and even UN buildings as shields as they built their control centers underneath them. Hamas, not Israel, is the one who attacked civilians and took civilians as hostages. Family of the hostages have actually filed a war crime complaint against Hamas in The Hague. The West does want to help civilians and hostages, but they're also motivated by unrest within their own growing Muslim population. The question now is, what will happen next? If Israel goes after Hamas and Rafah, they'll be condemned by the world. It's possible the current talks could force Hamas to accept a more reasonable hostage deal, perhaps allowing the hostages to go in exchange for allowing Hamas's leadership and, and some fighters to go into exile. But right now, Europe and the U.S., for their own political reasons, are war-weary, uh, while Israel's pushing for victory over Hamas. Hamas is hoping these other nations will force Israel to stop before it's too late for them. They don't care about civilians or hostages, except to use them as bargaining chips to remain in power. From Moody Radio, this is The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Israel expert. I'm John Geiger. Charlie, let's turn for a moment from the conflict in the Middle East to take a look at the archaeological news from the Euphrates to the Nile. A recent study focused on dating the Ishtar Gate in Babylon using archaeomagnetism. What is archaeomagnetism, and what did the researchers discover about that gate? Archaeomagnetism is the study of geomagnetic data, in this case taken from samples in the bricks of Babylon's Ishtar Gate, to help date when it was built. Some of the bricks in the Ishtar Gate were inscribed with the name of King Nebuchadnezzar, so they had a clear general idea of when it was built. Slight changes in the magnetic field of the bricks from which samples were taken show that the building process took place in phases over several years, apparently after other nearby building projects caused the street to be raised. The original unglazed Ishtar Gate, that's still in Babylon. I've walked on it, but you need to go down a flight of stairs to reach it. Nebuchadnezzar covered that gate and replaced it with one made of glazed brick, and that gate is the one that's now in the Pergamum Museum in Berlin. Well, what the archaeologists discovered was that the construction on this revised Ishtar Gate didn't begin until about 583 B.C. That's three years after the destruction of Jerusalem, and the construction continued for several years. This study reminds me of Nebuchadnezzar's words in Daniel 4.30. You know, that's when he boasted, is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built? Well, he might have even been looking at the remodeled Ishtar Gate rising right next to his palace on which he was standing when he made those words. 
In any case, this new study simply reminds us that Nebuchadnezzar's prideful statement was true. He was constantly remodeling, improving, and beautifying his city, which he saw as a monument to his greatness. Moving from the Euphrates to the Nile, Egypt announced its project of the century to fully restore one of the three main pyramids in Giza. What do they hope to accomplish here, Charlie, and how is that plan being received? Well, this story takes us into the realm of the bazaar. Initially, Egypt's Supreme Council of Antiquities announced a project to restore the smallest of the three main pyramids in Giza by refacing it with granite so that it would look exactly like it did when it was initially built 4,500 years ago. Now, the problem is that this would fundamentally change the look of the pyramid and make it garishly stand out from the other two larger pyramids nearby. Needless to say, the project has come under fire from historians and archaeologists who see it almost as a desecration. It would be like rebuilding the Colosseum in Rome or or adding a roof back on the Acropolis in Athens. In light of the uproar, the Minister of Tourism issued a decree forming a committee to review the restoration project and issue its recommendations. No time frame was announced, and I'm kind of hoping that this project dies a quiet death in committee. (laughs) Okay. Well, as the war in Gaza continues, Israel's high-tech community is using innovation and technology to save lives and bring closure to those who have lost loved ones. Tell us about these war-inspired innovations from Amazing Israel. Yeah, uh, both of them involve artificial intelligence, and the first is the use of artificial intelligence to review scans and send alerts to doctors. Uh, One woman was shot by Hamas and rushed to the hospital and underwent a variety of scans. The scans were then pushed through the AI platform uh, designed to detect different pathologies, and it detected a lethal tiny aneurysm in her brain and immediately notified the appropriate staff via text. In mass casualty events like that of October 7, the program can help triage and prioritize care for patients. The other AI program developed allows for more rapid and accurate identification of victims in mass casualty events. Israel suddenly had to deal with thousands of bodies, some that appeared to be burned or mutilated almost beyond recognition. They first performed CT scans on all the bodies, looking for any identifiable markers like pacemakers, surgery scars, hip replacements, things like that. Uh, Some bodies, though, were virtually disintegrated with only small bone fragments remaining. They then gathered all the medical records of anybody reported missing. And the AI program then performed an automatic comparison of up to 117 skeletal parts to try to match the remains with any available evidence. Uh, Using the program, which also included DNA evidence, fingerprints, dental records when available, the pathologists were able to identify many of those who'd been killed, providing some closure to grieving families. The truly amazing aspect of all this is that both of these AI programs were developed in a matter of weeks under some of the most difficult circumstances, highlighting the impact of these dedicated scientists, doctors, and researchers in amazing Israel. Well, so much going on in the Middle East right now. Charlie, we're told to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Would you lead us in a brief prayer even now? Yeah, I will, John. Father, we do pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We ask that you would help the fighting to stop give the leadership wisdom in knowing the best decisions to be made, and then protect those, especially those who are trying to protect the rest of the land of Israel. Uh, Give them safety, and we pray for that peace in Jesus' name. Amen. And we invite you to be praying for the peace of Jerusalem as well throughout the day. Up next here on The Land and the Book, it's a visit to a prison excavation, not just any prison. It's where Paul was held, right on the Mediterranean coast. Hope you'll stick around for more here on Moody Radio's The Land and the Book. 
prison. Boy, the very word feels like a bucket of ice dumped down your back, doesn't it? But believers throughout the ages have known what it means to spend time in prison. Just ask the Apostle Paul. Actually, we're about to do better than that. Hey, welcome back to The Land and the Book. It's our second segment on the program. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, spent many years as a licensed Israeli tour guide. I'm John Geiger, always hungry to learn something new, especially when we're traveling together with our wives in Israel. It's a privilege to be here, Charlie, isn't it? It is, John, absolutely. What a great place to study God's Word. Okay, people are picking up a little bit of background sound. Exactly where are we, Charlie? We are in Caesarea. Actually, we're in Caesarea Maritima. Uh, That is Caesarea by the Sea, uh, which distinguishes it from Caesarea Philippi, which is back up by Mount Hermon. Now, this city was built by Herod the Great. It actually extends onto the Mediterranean, and we're about 30 miles north of Israel's old city port of Joppa. So we are just feet away from the uh, edges of the shoreline here. The waves coming in real nice as we record today. It's a beautiful day. All right, the significance of this place is what, Charlie? Well, in New Testament times, it was Herod the Great's lifeline to Rome. Uh, The empire is the the Romans. They kept him in power. In fact, Herod literally had this city rise out of the sand. Now, there was no good port in this area. Uh, There's no dependable water supply. There's no significant road links. In short, there was no strategic advantage to this place. But Herod needed a connection to Rome that uh, was not connected to the Jewish people, even though he was king of the Jews. And for his security, uh, building a new port out of nothing uh, gave him that strategic link. Until he built this, ships had to dock out at sea on their way from Dora in the north to Joppa in the south. And so Herod needed this strategic port. Well, the waves of the Mediterranean in the background, and what a sight it is. Paul, of course, was arrested in Jerusalem and taken by a Roman guard to Caesarea, where we are now. How big might that party have been accompanying Paul, and how long might the trip have taken? Yeah, we tend to skip over those details, but it's a major operation. Forty Jewish zealots had taken an oath saying that they weren't going to drink or eat anything until they could ambush and kill Paul. So when the commander of the fortress heard that, he put together a major force to take Paul from Jerusalem to Caesarea. In fact, Acts 23 uh, says that they had 200 foot soldiers and 70 horsemen. Uh, and then they also had an additional 200 spearmen or archers, depending on the translation there. That's 470 wow. Romans uh, in a force. And they left the barracks, it makes note, at 9 p.m., which is about the time everything would shut down for the night in yeah. Jerusalem. So they're slipping away in the dark. Uh, and uh, they marched all night to Antipatris, which is a 30-mile hike. Now, again, 400 of those guys are not on horses. They're marching on foot. Hmm. That would take uh, a good seven hours to hike that far. Uh, At that point, they let the 400 soldiers head back, the 70 horsemen with Paul on a horse, then made the additional 30-mile journey from there to Caesarea. So it was a two-day journey to get Paul up here and a major force. And I think about the water that would have been required, not just for the people to drink, but the animals as well, the food they would have had eaten on the journey. Oh, yeah. they had. To, now, the Romans were good at, at uh, logistics, but yeah, to get all those logistics ready that fast had to be a major operation. Okay, so when they arrived at this place with Paul, how do we know that this place where we now stand is likely the place? Well, there's actually several clues that let us know. Uh, the last verse in Acts 23 says, Paul was kept in Herod's Praetorium. Oh, the Praetorium was the palace or headquarters, uh, which places Paul at the, uh, the guard barracks for Herod the Great originally, and that's where the Roman governors then lived afterward. Uh, but the word in that context has the idea of, of a soldier's barracks or headquarters. So as we were walking through the site, uh, they're actually excavating right now that spot underground 
where the barracks was, and likely that's where Paul was kept. So uh, putting it all together, it looks like the palace complex is where Paul was, and specifically underground in that palace complex. Okay, you have touched on the very next question I want to ask, underground. What might those prison conditions have been like during Paul's day? Well, okay, I'll start with some good news. Uh, he probably wasn't kept in stocks. Uh, he wasn't kept in solitary confinement. Uh, he was allowed to have visitors, we know. But the prison complex was underground, and it's likely that Paul wouldn't have gotten you know, the fresh air break that we give modern prisoners today out in the yard. Uh, so uh, he was uh, stuck underground underneath the atrium or garden area of Herod's palace. Uh, it would have been dark. I expect it would have been smelly, probably damp in there, right, being right here as we are, right next to the ocean. Uh, likely he got uh, normal food rations, probably the same rations fed to the soldiers, but uh, it would not have been a pleasant place. That's Dr. Charlie Dyer, host of The Land and the Book, who is leading a tour in Israel. We've tagged along with our microphones here with the broadcast to kind of tap into his expertise on today's program. Well, describe a best-case scenario for archaeologists working at this site. What would their highest hopes look like or have looked like? You know, I, I think they'd love to be able to reconstruct what it was like in the uh, that first century era, the New Testament era, we would say, and what it was like in the days of the second Jewish revolt against Rome. Uh, they did discover an inscription made by some female prisoner in that prison that asked the Lord Jesus to help Procopus, someone from the first century, very likely someone who was a, uh, uh, imprisoned in, in that prison. Uh, in AD 135, Jewish rabbi Akiva was imprisoned in Caesarea, probably in that same prison as well. And we know from history, he was taken out then and executed. Well, what kind of a time frame would you guess would be required for a thorough excavation and the cataloging of all the contents here? Is it years from now, five, ten, or is it mostly done? You know, it's two months ago I saw that excavation for the first time, so last year it didn't exist. Two months ago it was there. Today it's a lot even, even more expanded, and when you see somebody with a jackhammer inside, you know that they're not doing it in a <laughs> slow, methodical fashion. Uh, they are really trying to reconstruct this area and doing it as quickly as possible. Well, if Paul were to revisit this site today, right where we are now standing, would he recognize it at all for the place it was in his day? Why or why not? Well, I think he would somewhat recognize it, though he'd be a bit confused at first. Uh, the, the ocean has carved away some of the areas that would have been familiar to him, and yet he would have seen this palace complex, would have at least known those foundations uh, that existed. The uh, prison would have been familiar to him by, by all means, and certainly the theater was there, uh, now, he wouldn't have under seen all that uh, beautiful aluminum girding and uh, modern equipment in that uh, theater, but, but otherwise, I think he would have understood it and, and said, yeah, I've been here. We're on the very shores of the Mediterranean Ocean, a Herod's Palace built out over the Mediterranean, a helicopter flying by. We're having a great time talking about Paul's uh, rather uncomfortable stay here in the underground prison. Take us to a place in Scripture that welds this place to the passage. Okay, well, even as that helicopter flies overhead, John, uh, the passage I would think of is Acts 23 and 24. You know, we can mentally travel with Paul from Jerusalem to Caesarea. Uh, we can watch as he's delivered to the prison. Uh, the conditions look abysmal to us, but uh, Paul might have said at least the place was relatively clean and comfortable. Uh, the food was good and it wasn't uh, going to be mistreated here. Certainly wasn't anybody here who's going to try and put him to death at that point. Uh, but remember, this is the guy who said he learned all things, uh, through all things, you know, he was going to be content. So I think Paul would have said, yeah, it looks fine. Why did this prison cease being a prison? What factors might have contributed to Caesarea itself fading from prominence? Well, over time, the harbor sank beneath the Mediterranean. It could have been destroyed by a massive storm or by an earthquake. 
Uh, we don't know the exact date or cause, but what we do know is that eventually it ceased being used as a major harbor. They constructed a much smaller harbor there, but it really kind of sank into obscurity, if you will. Uh, so the aqueducts shifted, the uh, part of them were washed away by a storm, so there was water supply uh, ceased being uh, here that was supplying it with everything it needed. So eventually this place just seemed to settle back into the backwater that it was before Herod the Great came along. One thing that struck me as you were speaking with our tour group, Charlie, is we're pointing out the luxury that Herod enjoyed in his palace, a, a swimming pool that was out over the Mediterranean itself. But the placement of this prison where Paul was is so close. Why would you build it so close? And why not, why not get the, uh, the, the low life further away from the, the hoity-toity? Ah, because the Praetorium was the, the guards. They were, they were the, IR, the, the secret service, if you will, guarding Herod. And so Paul would have been kept with the Secret Service, and the Secret Service were near where the, the king was, uh, underground, out of sight. Uh, you know, it wasn't like it, it, um, something that stuck out at him, but indeed uh, he wanted him close by because Herod valued security. So we passed a, a really important stone or a mock-up or, or a recreation of a stone on the way in. Talk about that stone and the character that we read in biblical history. Yeah, fascinating stone because it's, it's a, uh, an inscription. Actually, the theater that was built by Herod the Great had to be remodeled probably 100 years later. Some of the seats needed to be replaced, and uh, the, some enterprising construction worker decided, I'll just rip this old sign off this dilapidated building, flip it on its end, and slide it in as a new seat. And underneath that theater, when they, when they excavated it uh, by archaeologists, they, they found on it, it mentioned uh, the, the, the sign was for a building called the Tiberium, Tiberius Caesar, and had been built by Pontius Pilate, the prefect of Judah. What does that say by way of tongue-in-cheek humor about the, the Bible's impression of, of these people? Yeah, well, you know, I, I look at it two ways, because there were people who said Pontius Pilate didn't even exist, and it's embarrassing to have an inscription to someone that these critics didn't think was around. But on the other side, it's like they thought they were so important building these inscriptions and putting their names out there, and finally God says, ah, someone's tush can, can sit on it, and that's, that's good enough for me. That's Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. This is The Land and the Book, a special edition as we join you today from Israel. We're in the, the north. We're by the Mediterranean Ocean. Man, it's so close, Charlie. I feel like i got to get my feet wet. <laughs> well, you, you have the opportunity, John. All right. In addition to that stone, other archaeological evidence here impacting our understanding of the New Testament. Talk about that which has been discovered and that which is being discovered likely. Well, you know, Caesarea, we usually have it as our first stop because there is so much here uh, that pulls people into the time of the Bible. Uh, the characteristics, I would say, of, of Herod the Great, uh, of uh, his massive building projects, the inscription you know, that we just talked about found on the underside of that seat mentioning Pontius Pilate, uh, prefect of Judah. Uh, but Paul likely gave his message, and that's what we just talked about with the group at the end, uh, to uh, Festus and Agrippa and the prison where Paul spent years of his life. Now, those are, are uh, real people. They were real events in the Bible. And I think this is one of those places where you stand and suddenly say, wow, it did happen right here. All right, how about your best guess? As uh, Paul sat there in prison, likely underground, as you've pointed out, did he hope and even expect that he might someday return from Rome as a freed person? Or do you think he probably understood that this was, quite frankly, a one-way trip? Uh, you know, in this time in his life, I really think Paul expected to gain his freedom. And here's why I say that. In, in Romans, which he, he was writing before he'd ever gone to Rome, Paul said he was uh, taking a collection in Greece at that time, going back to the church here in Jerusalem to bring it. And then his plan was to travel to Rome, he says, on his way to Spain. And uh, God changed the timing for his trip. God changed the way he was going to get to Rome for that trip. But I think Paul had it all planned. He said, God's going to take me to Rome. I'm going to go to Spain. And I really do think that's what Paul expected to happen. 
All right, what about some lessons that we can take from Paul and his stay at this ancient prison location on the Mediterranean? You know, Philippians is what comes to mind. You stand over there and look down into that prison, and then you remember uh, what Paul said in Philippians 4, you know, in verses 11 and 13, which he wrote after spending years at Caesarea and enduring the shipwreck and everything. He said, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. And then two verses later, he said, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Well, that involved, you know, I can be in a prison, I can endure the shipwreck, I can endure all of that because God is there with me. Uh, so uh, can we learn to be content like that? And can we remember that God can give us the strength we need for all of our details? Uh, those are great lessons from Paul uh, right here at Caesarea. You know, I can read that scripture passage and I can see these remains. And yet I still think if it were me, I'd probably whine, complain and be Eeyore and who, who knows how many other negative folks. We do, and that's because we all are struggling. But it's amazing to me what Paul says there. In fact, he says, I learned to be content, which tells me he wasn't always the most content person, but God used those experiences to bring that depth and maturity in his life, and God can do that in our lives as well. Well, terrific lessons from the Mediterranean here where Paul was in prison for a time. Great to connect with you, Charlie, and we're looking forward to being back in the studio. Questions and answers, that's next. You pumped? I am ready, John. You're always ready. And uh, we're looking forward to seeing what's puzzling you, what things are on your heart as you read through Scripture, or maybe read uh, something online, an article about Israel or prophecy. It's always welcome. Our email address is thelandandthebook at moody.edu. That's thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Don't go away. Questions and answers next here on Moody Radio's The Land and the Book. Hope you're having a good day. This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, seated across from Dr. Charlie Dyer, whose Bible is open, whose pulse is at a rest rate. I mean, the guy just doesn't sweat it. When you ask him questions, and uh, I say questions, those are questions about the Bible, prophecy, and uh, our own Christian walk. They're always welcome at The Land and the Book at moody.edu. And Charlie, because our stack is thick with questions, I'll get out of the way and we'll dig into two questions based on John chapter 5. We'll start with Judy. She says, in John 5, 4, why do some translations only have the number for verse 4 in brackets? while the verse itself is at the bottom of the page. Who is an angel of the Lord who stirred the waters at the pool? And does this pool still exist today? And was it filled by an underground source? Along those same lines, Mark wants to know about John 5. Apparently, this was a place known for healing. It happened when an angel went down and stirred up the water. The first one in the water was healed. Do we know if this was tradition, superstition, or the real deal? And do we know what the religious leader's attitude was? Would they have been upset if the angel healed on the Sabbath? Why didn't they prohibit people from coming to the pool on the Sabbath? Faith played a central role in Jesus' other healings, but the lame man in John 5 didn't even know who Jesus was, let alone demonstrate faith in him. There's got to be a lesson here I'm missing. All right, Charlie, we've scrambled it all up. We'll look to you to make sense of it all. Okay, yeah, and this is for those who are going, what, John 5? That's the miracle of the healing at the Pool of Bethesda. Now, there's the, first I'll start with that textual issue. There is an issue as to whether or not the last part of verse 3 and all of verse 4 should be part of the original text or if those verses were added later. And they don't occur in a number of manuscripts that are considered significant. That's why many translators don't think they're original. Now, my personal feeling, I think the verses ought to be included. I believe they were left out of some manuscripts because the early copyists saw them as 
problematic. Uh, but one principle of textual criticism of figuring out what the original text is, is that the more difficult reading is often the original, since that's the one most copyists would tend to leave out or gloss over. Uh, the angel that's mentioned in those verses, uh, it sounds like the product of American theology rather than biblical theology. Here's what I mean. Uh, we tend to think God helps those who help themselves. Now, that's not a biblical concept. But it says when the angel stirred up the pool, you know, the first to step in would be healed. Well, the most likely first one to step in would be the healthiest. The one most in need, like this man was, could never seem to get into the water in time. So in light of that, I think the issue is the, who the angel was. I don't think the angel was a good angel, but a fallen angel. You know, all angels were created by God, but a third of the angelic host followed Satan in his rebellion against God. This event has all the hallmarks of satanic deception written over it. People were held hostage to the site, hoping against hope to be the first one to win that healing lottery and get in. And if the angel wasn't sent from God, then the problem with the verse disappears and we see the hopeless position these people were in. Now, the remains of this pool, it has been uncovered. It's just to the north of the Temple Mount. There's no water in it today, and we're not even sure how the pools were filled in the past. Some think it was with rainwater. Others believe, and I, I tend to go with them, that it may have been a, a conduit or an aqueduct that brought in water from a spring. An earlier version of this aqueduct actually, I think, is mentioned in Isaiah 7. Now, there's archaeological evidence that the site was a pagan healing center known as an Asclepian, a pagan healing site. The man who was healed had no idea who Jesus was, so he wasn't healed by faith. In fact, when Jesus met up with him later, he focused on the man's needs to stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. And the name of the place, Beth Hesed or Bethesda, means house of mercy or house of unmerited favor, and that's what Jesus did demonstrate to the man. And in terms of asking what lessons I see, well, I see uh, at least one other lesson in this passage, it's the danger of legalism. Here's a site with pagan influence just north of the temple but the main issue the religious Jews had was the fact that the man was carrying his pallet on the Sabbath. They apparently weren't as concerned about the pagan influence or the miraculous healing that had taken place. And legalism often ends up with people majoring on the minors, which is a lesson I really see us needing to take away from that event. Ghani's question. In our recent Bible study, a question was raised regarding the terms Israel or Israelite and Jew. A follow-up question. Are all Jews Israelites and the other way around? Well, okay, I'll trace the history of this. Abraham was first called a Hebrew, and that's back in Genesis 14. And it was used to describe his descendants then several times. Uh, the term Israel and Israelite came about originally when God changed Jacob's name to Israel in Genesis 32. That became the name for the nation at the time of the Exodus and continued to describe the nation all the way up through the reigns of David and Solomon. Now, following Solomon's death, the kingdom split in two. The northern kingdom it kept the name Israel. The southern kingdom became known as Judah, since that's the tribe that their king came from. After the destruction of the northern kingdom in 722 BC, the remaining kingdom was still called Judah. But refugees from the northern kingdom of Israel fled there and became citizens of Judah. And as a result, they were known as Jews, even though they weren't from the tribe of Judah. Now, a good example of this, Esther 2.5, were introduced to a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai. Now, to get to the other part of the question, all Jewish people are physical descendants of Jacob or Israel, so technically, they're all Israelites. However, once the kingdom divided, the term Israel was more commonly used to identify those from the northern kingdom, while the term Judah was used for the southern kingdom. So once the northern kingdom disappeared, Judah or Jew became the more common designation for Abraham's descendants since Judah was the remaining kingdom. 
You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. We welcome your questions anytime at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Mark says, we're from the Chicago area but moved to East Tennessee about eight years ago and listen via podcast. If you're not uh, taking advantage of that podcast, by the way, it's at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Mark says, my wife and I lead a couple's small group and we want to do a study of Revelation. However... One member of the group is very much opposed to what he believes, a narrow perspective on the book, and would like to do a book that includes all possible theories with regard to the rapture, millennial kingdom, etc. Do you know of such a book, i.e. Bible study on Revelation, that deals with all possible interpretations of Revelation? I'm concerned such a book might just be confusing. (laughs) Confusing is a good word. Uh, There is one book I know of. There's probably many, but the one I know of is called Four Views on the Book of Revelation, edited by Marvin Pate. Uh, It does what this member of the Bible study wants. It has four authors, each of whom try to make a case for one of the four different approaches to the book. Now, my problem with this type of book, especially for a Bible study, is that it would usually create more problems and confusion than it solves. It's appealing to our postmodern approach to life where you have your truth, I have my truth. But in the end, it usually either confirms someone's prejudice or else convinces someone it's hopeless to study a book with so many possible interpretations. Now, having said that, Pate's book rises above many in that those arguing the case do so in a scholarly fashion. But what I would suggest, though, is say to your friend, uh, maybe that you and he or she could do a, a study on these four views. But using it as a basis for a Bible study with a whole group will generate more heat than light and probably lead more people to be afraid to study a book that promises a blessing for reading and heeding its message, as Revelation 1.3 says. Here's a question about John 10. Since the rededication events in John 10 took place four centuries after the writing of Malachi and the close of the Old Testament and Jewish scriptures, how was it and when was it that Hanukkah came to be celebrated as a Jewish holiday? Do we know if it grew out of oral tradition or did it come from the book of the Maccabees? How do Jewish scholars regard the Maccabees? Now, the events grew out of the revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes by Mattathias and his sons, who were the Maccabees. Those events were predicted actually in part of Daniel 8 and 11, but the book of First Maccabees is considered the best historical summary of the events during that time and the establishment of the Feast of Dedication or Hanukkah. A final confirmation is actually found in the Jewish historian Josephus in Antiquities of the Jews. He provides the historical background, and it matches quite closely the record in 1 Maccabees, and he explains how it became a Jewish festival. Now, most scholars accept the historicity of the Maccabees and the revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes, and they see 1 Maccabees and Josephus being historically reliable when it comes to the establishment of Hanukkah. By the way, the events took place about 160 years before the time of Christ in the intertestamental period. Brian asks, in Proverbs 22, verse 6, we're told to train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. Unfortunately, countless young people were raised properly and then did go their own way as time passed. I'm not doubting the truth of this verse, but exactly how should we interpret it? I think the key is understanding that it's wisdom literature, and uh, Proverbs is wisdom literature. It needs to be understood not as ironclad promises, but as general principles of how life actually works. So in general, if we train up a child the way they should go, they'll reach a point where they choose to make proper decisions for themselves. But that isn't always the case. Now, you might say, well, hey, you're copying out there. But I think I can give you an example of this. Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. Verse 4 tells us not to answer a fool according to his folly. But the very next verse tells us to answer a fool according to his folly. 
And what the writer's saying is there are times when we need to make sure we don't descend to the level of the fool uh, so we become like him. But in other situations, we need to respond in a way the fool can understand lest he thinks he's wiser than he really is. And wisdom comes knowing which response is appropriate. Anyway, the bottom line is that if we understand it's wisdom literature that explains how life generally works and how we should respond, uh, that makes better sense. And by the way, wisdom literature also includes the book of Job, which is a reminder that life doesn't always work the way we might expect. And that's a look at the questions that have come in recently to our broadcast. Yours welcome anytime at the land and the book at moody.edu. Don't go away. Charlie's devotional is next right here. There is something very special about being in church during the Advent season very special sermons that are often shared. What about a sermon from a shepherd, though? Charlie, I understand that's uh, the essence of where we're headed in your devotional. Uh, It is. However, it's going to be 700 years before the Advent, but it is a sermon from a shepherd. All right. I'll look forward to that after we enjoy this Holy Land experience testimony from somebody who's traveled to Israel and has an insight for us right now. Hello, my name is John Perzee. I'm from Cedar Lake, Indiana and came here with Charlie Dyers on this Holy Land trip. And I will tell you, the Old Testament has come alive. All the stories that we've heard since we were knee-high to a grasshopper are just fantastic when you start to walk through the land and you realize here was David and Goliath, here was Samson and Delilah, and here was David as a shepherd boy and all of these things, it's just fantastic. Then we get to Jerusalem, and we see where Jesus rode in on the triumphal entry, and he just sobbed over the city because they were lost. And then we get to see where Jesus walked and where he taught, and it's just a great experience. I'd uh, suggest it highly to anyone that is uh, looking for an experience to, to walk closer with the Lord. Well, if you got your Bible open, we're headed to Amos chapter 3. Charlie, you've titled your devotional, Sermon from a Shepherd. I'm listening. All right, thanks, John. Yeah, our journey today takes us to the top of the Herodium, the fortress palace built by Herod the Great. But we're not here today to admire Herod's palace or to focus on his ruthless character. Instead, we're here to get a good view of the hometown of a remarkable prophet from the Old Testament. So follow me around the top of this fortress to a place where we can have a good view toward the south. See that village perched on the hill about three miles to our southwest? That's the modern Arab town of Tekoa. It preserves the name of the Jewish town that's set at the same spot in the Old Testament, the village of Tekoa, the hometown of Amos the prophet. Seeing the physical location of Tekoa helps us understand more about Amos. Off to our right, we can see Bethlehem about four miles to the northwest. But more importantly, Bethlehem is about 2,500 feet above sea level. That's about 100 feet higher than where we are now standing. Tekoa is also on top of a hill, but that hill is another 300 feet lower than where we're standing. Bethlehem is on the spiny ridge that runs through the center of ancient Judah. Anyone heading east from Bethlehem also begins traveling down in elevation on the way toward the Dead Sea. Rainfall begins dropping off dramatically to the east of Bethlehem. As we know from the book of Ruth, wheat and barley grew in the fields around Bethlehem. 
but head east and the cultivated fields give way to the flocks and herds feeding off the grass and shrubs growing there. David tended his father's flocks to the east of Bethlehem. It's no wonder that Amos, living in Tekoa, described himself as a shepherd and a herdsman rather than a farmer. This is a place for watching over sheep and cows, not tilling the soil. Amos also describes himself as having one other occupation, saying that he, quote, took care of sycamore fig trees. He actually describes himself as a, quote, nipper of sycamore figs in Hebrew. Sycamore figs aren't the same as the sycamore trees or fig trees we know. They're a tall tree that produce fruit that look similar to a fig. However, the unripe fruit needs to be nipped or scratched open to promote ripening. These trees require a lot of water, something lacking in Tekoa. Likely, Amos led his flocks through the wilderness to a place like Jericho where sycamore fig trees did grow. In exchange for allowing his flocks to graze on the grass underneath, Amos would climb the tree to nip the figs, helping them to ripen. Long before the time of Zacchaeus, Amos likely climbed up in the sycamore tree in Jericho. But we're not here today to focus on Tekoa or sheep or even sycamore fig trees. Instead, I want to focus on one of the sermons God called on this fig-nipping shepherd to deliver. Amos traveled from Tekoa to Bethel, north of Jerusalem, to share God's message of impending doom with the people of the kingdom of Israel. Beginning in chapter 3, Amos delivered three messages of judgment from the Lord. Each one, in chapters 3, 4, and 5, begins with the phrase, Hear this word. And in the middle of each message, Amos then announces the judgment that God is about to bring. After stating his overall theme in the first two verses of chapter 3, Amos then asks a series of rhetorical questions. Each points to the reality of cause and effect. Two people walking along engaged in deep conversation probably just didn't happen to chance by. A lion just doesn't roar for no reason. A bird doesn't just walk into a snare and push the trap shut. When a warning trumpet, a city's original emergency alarm system sounds, people do stop and tremble at approaching danger. And then Amos connects his message and those cause and effect questions to God's early warning system. The lion has roared, so who will not fear? The sovereign Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy? As a shepherd, Amos likely had felt a surge of fear rush up his spine when he was surprised by the roar of a lion as it charged from a thicket toward him and his flock. And now heaven's ultimate lion was issuing his divine roar just before pouncing on the nation of Israel. The message from this heaven-sent prophet was direct and to the point. God was about to send an enemy to overrun the land. He will pull down your strongholds and plunder your fortresses. Amos's message of judgment could actually be understood in two ways. In chapter 1, he reported that he delivered his message two years before the earthquake. And in chapter 9, he prophetically reports the devastation caused by that earthquake. Archaeologists have discovered evidence of a massive earthquake that tore through the land around 750 B.C. From Hatzor, north of the Sea of Galilee, all the way down to Gezer and Lachish, southwest of Jerusalem, this earthquake devastated the land. 200 years later, the prophet Zechariah used this earthquake as a point of reference. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, Zechariah 14.5. But Amos's message also looks beyond the impending earthquake to describe an even greater devastation that would strike the northern kingdom of Israel a quarter of a century later. That's when the Assyrian army came through to devastate and conquer Israel. They quite literally overran the land. 
pulled down the strongholds, and plundered all the fortified cities and towns. Recalling his experience trying to protect his flock against a marauding lion, Amos graphically pictures the outcome of God's judgment. As a shepherd saves from the lion's mouth only two leg bones or the piece of an ear, so will the Israelites be saved. Once God has unleashed his judgment on Israel, Amos compares what remains to the scraps of flesh and bones left behind after a lion has finished killing and devouring a helpless lamb. Even as he spoke those words, Amos must have remembered the sickening feeling he felt in the pit of his stomach as he surveyed such carnage in the past and recognized what God was threatening to unleash in the not-too-distant future. Why was God announcing such destruction? Amos shares why in his message, though some of it is more difficult for us to understand. In verse 9, he says the nation is guilty of great unrest and oppression. In the next verse, he explains that they do not know how to do right as they hoard plunder and loot in their fortresses. Evidently, the rich and powerful were oppressing those who were less fortunate. In the very next chapter, Amos describes the wealthy women of Samaria who oppressed the poor and crushed the needy. They were guilty, he says, of immorality, greed, dishonesty, corruption, and idolatry. And now it was time for God to settle accounts. Amos wasn't a professional prophet. He was a shepherd, just a businessman from that little village you see over there in the distance. But God called him to deliver a series of profound messages to a nation on the brink of national disaster. And yet, did you notice God's grace? Amos delivered the message two years before the earthquake and about 25 years before the arrival of the Assyrians. God gave the nation time to repent. They chose not to obey, but he still gave them that opportunity through Amos. The application for us today is twofold. First, our nation seems to be running away from God and his word as fast as it can. But as Paul wrote in Galatians 6-7, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And the same is true of nations. We need to be praying for revival. And that leads to the second application. Revival needs to start with us. Are you living for God today? And if you are, are you sharing God's message of hope and forgiveness with your family, friends, and neighbors? Amos was called out of his comfort zone to deliver God's urgent message to a needy nation. And God is now calling on each of us to do the same. Thank you, Charlie. Appreciate that sermon from a shepherd. You can hear it again at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Hope you enjoyed the program. Our time is gone, but we'll be back next week with another slate of guests, questions, devotionals, and more. And if you'd like to visit our website, we welcome you to thelandandthebook.org for complete program information, thelandandthebook.org. The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.